You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Alrighty, we are continuing our study in John's Gospel. We're taking the better part of here, just going line by line through a great book of the Bible written by Jesus' nearest and dearest friend. And today we hit the end of John 7 and into John chapter 8. The woman caught in adultery. And if you open your Bible, here's what it says. The earliest manuscripts do not include this section. All right, so we've got debris all over the runway today. We can't just take off. I got to get all the debris off the runway. What does that mean? Are there parts that shouldn't be in the Bible? If they're not supposed to be in the Bible, why are they in the Bible? What other parts shouldn't be in the Bible or should it be in the Bible? How do we get the Bible? What is the Bible? Immediately, I'm assuming you get a lot of questions. So today's group on Sunday, you get two sermons for the price of one. So... The first sermon will be how we got the Bible and why we believe it and trust it. And the second sermon will be on this section of John's great gospel. And uh, I'll start by uh, just telling you what the Bible is. And my hope is that you can start to understand God's word. Some of you are non-Christians. We love you. Good to have you. Some of you are Christians. Some of you are mature Christians. I grew up in a church going home, but I didn't know the Lord Jesus. And the only Bible we had was huge. It had its own zip code. This was a very large Bible. It was one of those large Bibles that sat on the coffee table and we never opened it. Um, And it had a lot of dust on it. Spurgeon, an old preacher would have said, enough dust to write damnation on the cover with my finger. That's how much dust was on the Bible. I never opened it. I figured if the end of the world comes, I'll hide behind it. If terrorists show up, I'll use it as a bulletproof vest. It was that big. Last thing you're going to do is put that thing on your lap as a kid you'll cut off circulation to your lower extremities. So I never read the Bible. I didn't know where it came from. I get into college and people are banging on the Bible like a pinata on Cinco de Mayo. Everybody is taking their, you can't trust it. The manuscripts are bad. It's been falsely interpreted. It's man-made. It's a bunch of hooey. And then I started trying to decide what do I think about the Bible. So let me start by talking about the Bible. And uh, the first question is often, what is the Bible? Well, this is the Bible. It's actually a library of books. It's 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus, 27 in the New Testament after the coming of Jesus. It's written in three languages. The Old Testament is mainly in Hebrew. The New Testament is mainly in Greek. There are bits and pieces in Aramaic as well. It's written by some 40 authors, roughly, over the course of about 1,500 years on three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. It is the best-selling book in the history of the world. It is the most translated book in the history of the world. It is still the most debated and controversial book in the history of the world. When you open the Bible, you will notice, in addition to books, there are chapters. Those chapters were added about 1200 AD. So more than a 1,000 years after the Bible was written, the chapters were added. 
you will also see verses. Those were added in the 1500s, more than 1400 years after the Bible was written. Those exist for the same reason that you have an address on your home, so that people can find things. That's why they put chapters and verses in the Bible, though they were not originally part of the first manuscripts. Now, when it comes to the Bible, the Bible says regarding itself that its origin is divine, that it is not just a word about God, that it is the word of God, it is a word from God. And so there are two particular places I just want to focus on briefly. One is from the Apostle Paul. He says famously in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. What that means is um, when God speaks, he speaks through his word, right? Right now, as I communicate to you, I am breathing out so that I can speak to you. This is the breath of God. This is how God communicates. This is how God reveals. In the Old Testament alone, it says more than 200 occasions, thus saith the Lord. So what God says, the word of God says. What the word of God says is what God says. This is the word of God. That's exactly what it means. Peter says it this way. No prophecy of scripture, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What he's talking about here is that this is not speculation from man. This is revelation to man from God, from God. That these were not ideas and concepts that people came up with. This was God speaking clearly and authoritatively to all of humanity through the written word of God. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, quote, of the making of books, there is no end. Meaning there are a never ending parade of books that are rolling off the um, production line and off the printing press. And there is one book that is unlike any other book and every other book, and that is the word of God that people didn't just share with us their opinions, but they revealed to us the very mind of God. And this is done through a divine partnership that admittedly is a bit of a mystery, that God speaks through a human author, that he carries them along, revealing his word, his will, his way to them and through them perfectly because God doesn't make any mistakes. Think of it this way. You see a kite in the air. It's filled with the spirit or with the wind, I should say, and carried along. So it is with an author of scripture. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is the power and presence of the person of the spirit who reveals to them the very words of God. Think of it like a ship out on a sea. The wind comes and it compels and propels it forward as it fills the sails. It directs its course. Similarly, people were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were carried Fourth, by the power of God, to know the mind of God, to reveal the word of God, to faithfully and accurately record the very words of God. Some will call this inspiration because human beings were divinely inspired. Some will call this inerrancy because it is without error. We believe all of that. And what we believe is that God works through the human personality and through the human author to reveal himself faithfully, accurately, truthfully, perfectly. What that means is that there is nothing else like the word of God. There is nothing equal to the word of God. There is nothing alongside or in authority over the word of God, that the word of God judges everyone and everything, and it is judged by no one and nothing else. 
that the Bible makes claims regarding itself that are unprecedented, unparalleled, and unequaled. When you open this and you read the words, you are receiving the words of God. Okay, that's the Bible. The next question that oftentimes comes is, well, how did we get the Bible? You know, how did we get to the point where today we sit and either on your phone or on your lap is the Bible and you get to read it for yourself. And there is a, a simple process of how we got the Bible. Step one is revelation. That is that God speaks, God reveals, God has something to say. God has something to say. Step two is inspiration. The Holy Spirit fills, empowers, guides, enables the author of scripture to faithfully, perfectly, and accurately record what God has revealed. I'll read it to you again. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1.20 and 21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is a miracle. This is supernatural. This is divine revelation. And what I am arguing for, and I've staked my entire adult life on, is that everything above this line is perfect. That when God speaks, and that servant of God, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Peter, Moses, Paul, whomever the author, human author might be, that the divine author works with them and through them to perfectly record the very words of God. The original copy is called the autographa. If you've ever bought memorabilia, maybe it's sports memorabilia or rock and roll memorabilia, and it's autographed, you need it authenticated so that it can be assured that it was a handwritten original autograph of the person who signed the memorabilia. That is the autograph. The autographa is what the commentators and the theologians will call the original copy. So Moses, Paul, Jeremiah, Peter, God reveals to them, the Holy Spirit fills them, and they write down the original, perfect, complete, without error, full authority, word of God. What happens then is step three, people hear God wrote a book. And as is not surprising, people ask, can I get a copy? I'd like to read the book that God wrote. So then you reach the point of transmission, and this is where scholars handwrite copies. You and I are privileged to just simply purchase books because a Christian named Johann Gutenberg invented something called the printing press. But in the ancient times, if you wanted a copy of a book, you had to receive a handwritten copy. All, just think of that, all books, all manuscripts were handwritten, which means you would either need to sit down and you know, read and write out exactly what was said somewhere if you could get a copy, and then you could have a copy for yourself, or you would pay for a copy to be made. This was a massive scholastic undertaking. People would devote their whole life to studying the languages of the Bible, and there would be a chief scribe, and there would be scribes. So let's just pretend that you are the scribes, and I am the chief scribe, and the way it would work is I would read what God wrote. You would hear what was said, and then you would record what I read. Now, that being the case, is it possible that some of you might misspell a word? Some of you are like, for sure. I misspell words all the time. My love language is misspelled words, okay? How many of you might get punctuation wrong? You're like, I don't, I'll just tell you me, I don't like punctuation. It slows me down. It slows me down, and I got a lot to say, so pray for my editors. Um, and so... 
It is possible that even if you were devoutly studied, faithfully committed, and you were focused, if this was your job, day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, it is possible you could hear me say something and you wrote a different word or you misspelled a word or you gave the wrong tense or you put the punctuation in the wrong place. Let's just agree that those are minor variances. Amen? Very minor. And the way that we would determine whether or not an error was made, there would then be editors who would come and they would take your scrolls, your manuscripts, and they would count from the back and count to the, from the front, and they would have certain places where they would be looking, well, at, you know, place number 137, there is to be this letter or this punctuation, and if they found any error, what would they do to your copy? They would destroy it because it wasn't perfect. They're making every effort to do things perfectly, accurately, in a way that is scholarly. Now, it is possible that honest errors are made and they are minor. Scholars will tell us that 99% of the New Testament, for example, is not in debate or question. One goes so far as to say that 99.4% is without question. How do we know? Well, let's say you've got a thousand copies. 998 spell the word this way. Two people spelled it this way. It is not a stretch to say, well, they heard the word and then they spelled it wrong, but this is the way that it is right. So the number of manuscripts helps us determine what was actually in the original. When it comes to those potential variations, mainly in punctuation and spelling, no major doctrine is in question, and the historicity of the New Testament is without precedent or peer. Now what happens then is, so God speaks, it is written down, copies are made. And then people in other languages hear, God wrote a Bible, God wrote a book. And they think, well, we'd love to read it, but we don't know the language. Is it possible to take that document and translate it into our language so that we could read it for ourselves? This is what happens constantly when it comes to history. When you go to college and you read history, you're reading something that has been translated from an original source. When you enter into a philosophy class, you're not reading the same language that it was originally written in. You are reading something that has been translated. So it is similarly when you take a lit class. You're reading an ancient piece of literature, a well-known novel or book. It is not written in that language that you are reading it in. It has been translated from that language into the language that you are reading. We do this all the time. We do this as well when we're dealing even to this present day with documents. How many of you are in business and you have international contracts? Has to be translated. This happens all the time. Translation is where we take the original manuscripts in their original language and we try to, with the best of academic intent, find ways to communicate that faithfully across different languages. Christians have done more work for the translation of various language and the creation of various written languages than any other group because we care about the word of God going forth. Some languages are oral. They are not written languages. And so God's people will show up 
get to know the people in that culture because God loves them and so do we, and then provide for them their first ever written language so then we can translate the Bible into their language because God loves all nations and languages. And the picture of the kingdom of God in Revelation is all the nations and languages will be around the resurrected Jesus. And so languages matter and God wants everyone to know about Jesus in their native and original language. What happens then is people pick up the Bible and they read it and they need to interpret it for themselves. What does this say? What does this mean? What is God saying to me? What is God asking of me? Okay. And so I know because the Bible says it and I've experienced it that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of scripture opens your understanding as you read the word of God. How many of you have had this experience? You're like, I open the Bible, I pray, and God teaches me about himself, about me, about our relationship. You know what to do. Okay, I can't live this way. I need to live that way. I can't think this way. I need to think that way. I can't walk this way. I need to walk that way. God is instructing me. He's informing me. He's correcting me. He's shaping me. He's directing me. And it's a supernatural, miraculous thing that happens. It is a meeting between you and God and the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of Scripture wants you to learn. And so when you open the word of God, the Holy Spirit opens your understanding so that you can meet with the God of the word and you can become like Jesus, who is the hero and center of scripture. And it's a supernatural divine thing that happens. Opening this book is unlike opening any other book. And if you read it accurately, you'll realize this book is not just one that you study. This is a book by which God studies you. All of a sudden you're like, this is what's in my heart. That needs to change. This is what's in my mind. This is wrong. These are the desires and inclinations of my will and they need to be redirected. God speaks to you through his word. And as you open the word of God, the Holy Spirit opens your heart and your mind and your will to receive a literal word from God. This is why I'm so passionate for you to be in God's word. That's why I'm so thrilled to have the opportunity to teach you God's word. I don't know what God will say to you, but if we open the book, I promise you this, he has something to say. He has something to say. That leads to the next question. How many of you have asked this question? Why are there so many Bible translations? How many of you have wondered that? Some of you recently became Christians and you've actually sent questions into the office. Some have asked, I'm a brand new Christian. I went to the store and there's all kinds of Bibles. I don't know which one to get. Why are there different translations? Well, when it comes to translating any ancient document, or for that matter, any modern recent document from one language to another, there are some various schools of thought. As a general rule, translations that are done by groups rather than individuals are better because a team of scholars devoting their entire life's work will have a better chance opportunity of getting things rightly than just one individual by themselves. And there are four basic ways of translating any document. First is word for word. The concept here is that every word that God speaks matters. That it's not just the concepts, but it's also the words that are perfect. Jesus says that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He furthermore says that every jot and tittle, another way of saying it would be every T will be crossed and every I will be dotted, that Jesus is doing everything just as was recorded. 
Some of you are attorneys. Some of you do business. Some of you transact contracts. When you're doing international business, you go from one language to another, and the words matter. Right? How many of you have signed a contract? You've actually read it. Right? You should pray about that. Uh, but in a contract, the words matter. So it is in the word of God, the words matter. And in the Bible, there are historical records and those details matter. There are actually legal contracts and even spiritual covenants and those words matter. So the concept of word for word is trying to get as faithfully and accurately from one language to another. Various translating teams that will use that word for word concept are the English standard version of the Bible. That's the one that I preach out of. In addition is the New American Standard Bible, a good word-for-word literal translation. The New King James Version would count for that as well. And there is the older King James Version, which is a literal word-for-word translation. Now, the King James is a good translation. It was an absolute gift and remarkably helpful and shaped Western civilization in a way that is unprecedented and unparalleled. But because it's an older translation, it uses English in a way that we don't necessarily use today. It's a little more older Elizabethan English. Furthermore, when the King James was translated, they were working from the best manuscript copies that they had. But since that time, more manuscript copies have been found. This happened, I think it was in 1948, the same year that the nation of Israel actually became a nation. A little boy is out, you know, taking care of his herd and he stumbles into a cave and there are earthenware vessels and lo and behold in it are a whole bunch of ancient scrolls. Some of which contain portions of the Old Testament. We now know those as the Dead Sea Scrolls. You may have heard of them. Now, those who study ancient documents are devoting a lot of time and energy since that time to studying these These manuscripts, these copies. Well, the King James Version didn't have those manuscripts available at the time. And so it is my opinion that the more recent word-for-word translations working from the largest and most recent number of manuscripts have the opportunity to be the most accurate. In addition to word-for-word, there is also thought-for-thought. In addition to history and legal contracts and covenants, the Bible also has poetry. There are whole books of the Bible that are poetry. Psalms are a bunch of songs. How many of you have tried to plug something into Google Translator online? Have you tried that? You're like, it comes out a little clunky. It'd be hard to put Johnny Cash in and then get Johnny Cash out because you got to kind of feel it, amen? You got to feel it a little bit. Teddy Pendergrass, you got to feel just a little bit. You want to put in a little, um, I, I won't say it, but you know, whatever your favorite artist is, <laughs> I'm thinking about someone in particular, they're ungodly, but they're really good at making music. And, and if you plug them in, a word for word may not get it just right, right? How many of you guys, you know, Valentine's Day comes and you're a word for word guy, but you need to become a thought for thought guy. You're like, I, I can't send her the love letter from Spock. I need to get some poetry in this. Otherwise, it's going to be a lonely Valentine's Day for me. Whole books of the Bible are poetic. There are things called the wisdom literature. It's a genre of literature. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job, Proverbs. They're wisdom literature. James in the New Testament is wisdom literature. Parts of books of the Bible are poetic. When you're translating poetry, you got to get the cadence, the rhythm. How many of you are musicians? Right? How many of you are songwriters? How many of you are artists? You're saying you can't just let the attorney translate that. 
there's a cadence, there's a rhythm, there's a flow, right? We're trying to get the woman to be happy, right? Not just communicate information, but also transformation at the level of the heart. So thought for thought comes in. How do we, how do we get the essence and the nuance of what is communicated? Translations in that vein would be the New International Version, the New Living Translation, and the Contemporary English Version. In addition, there are paraphrases. Paraphrases are those translations that are saying, we want to get the nuance, the thought, the, the, the heart, the, the flow. So we will try and communicate the big idea, and we may take some additional words that would have made more sense, making that emotional transition from the original to our current language, whatever that might be. And so sometimes they don't even include chapters and verses. So that would include the Amplified Bible. Uh, Today's Living Bible, that should be the New Amplified Bible, and also the Message. And the Message is a translation from one person, not a team. And it doesn't even have chapters and verses. So the, the paraphrases function a little bit more like a commentary. Okay? And there are some variations. Some translations are for little kids. So the New International Reader's Version is for younger children at a younger elementary age reading level. Some translations are for English as a second language folks who are learning English, but they need a a simpler introductory version of the English language. Most of your translations are going to be in a 6th to 8th grade reading level. Some of your word-for-word translations are going to be at a 10th grade reading level. So there are various things that are happening in the translation process, seeking to be faithful in getting God's word to as many people as possible in as many languages as possible. My view is that Bible translations are like ice cream flavors. How many of you like ice cream? You should all raise your hand. Even if you disagree with me on every point, we should all agree on this point. Ice cream is amazing. And, uh, and, and I like different flavors. I have my favorite flavor, but there's a lot of flavors that I'm really glad for. And sometimes I'll put them together into a triple scoop. And so what I'm saying is, if you want a triple scoop on your Bible translations, no judgment from me. Find a good word for word, find a good thought for thought, find a good paraphrase, get into God's word, get God's word into you. Amen? And then the last is corruptions. Corruptions are not translations. They are manipulations and corruptions. That's what they are. Have you had the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your house? Okay, we love them. They're wrong. And when they come to our house, um, when they come to your house, they will say, we believe in the new world translation of the Bible. It's actually not a translation. It's a corruption. That's what it is. The intent was to disbelieve in Jesus as God, to turn him into a created being, the archangel Michael, which he's not. So they don't want Jesus to be creator in God. They want him to be created being created by God. So they systematically, intentionally go through and edit God's word. We are not to edit God's word. We are to echo God's word. A faithful translation will echo God's word. Um, An unfaithful translation will edit God's word. And they went through and they omitted the times that Jesus is called God, except for two times they missed in Revelation. So that's where we start on my porch. That being said, (laughs) there are corruptions. There are bad Bible translations that are, in fact, not translations. Okay, that's how we got various Bible translations. So that leads to this question. Why should we trust copies of the Bible? Okay. 
Some of you have been told the Bible was written and then hundreds of years later, things were added and changed and misinterpreted and mistranslated. Our Mormon friends, whom I love, and they're wrong too, they'll say that the Bible has been you know, unfaithfully translated and we don't have a good accurate rendering of it, which is not true. Some critics of the Bible will say similar things. Now, I didn't necessarily believe in the Word of God until I was in college and I started taking classes where everyone was criticizing the Bible. This was at a state university. Yet in philosophy class, I'm studying Plato. In history class, I'm looking at the translations of ancient manuscripts of historical records. In literature classes, I am reading translated ancient documents that are now considered part of the Western canon of literature. And I ask myself, do we judge the Bible by the same standards that we judge all other ancient literature? And as you research it, you will find that the Bible is in a category of trustworthiness unto itself. I'll share it with you. This comes from an article that is linked in the app. So if you've got the church app, there is a link to this article in there on equip.org. And I can't get it all, you know, on the screen. Uh, but being your nerd friend, you get a free footnote this week. You're welcome. Okay, so, so we have the author, the work, the date written, the earliest manuscript, the time gap, and the number of manuscripts. We'll start with this one, Homer. You heard of Homer? Not the guy in The Simpsons. Another guy, another guy, another guy. We don't need to translate him so that we can get it perfect, okay? Homer... He wrote a book called The Iliad. Any of you have to read that in high school or college or you read the Sparks notes and faked it? Okay, Uh, Jesus forgives, don't do it again. But uh, The Iliad was written about 800 years BC. That's before Christ. The time gap between the original and the most recent copy is 400 years. We only have 1,700 manuscripts, which for an ancient document is a lot. How about this one? How many of you in college, you had to study Plato, right? One of the Greek philosophers. Um, He writes 400 years before Jesus Christ. The time gap from his original to the most recent manuscript copy that we have is how long? 1,300 years. That's a long time. Well, how many copies do we have? 210 manuscript copies. How about Caesar? You've heard of him? He writes just a little bit before Christ. The time gap from the oldest manuscript to the original is 950 years. And we only have 251 copies. We'll just jump down for the sake of time. The New Testament... It is perhaps 40 years between the writing of the original and the earliest manuscript copy that we have. Some of you have been told that there were long periods of time in which myth, legend, fable, and folklore occurred and accrued between the writing of the original and the copies that we have. That's not true. There is one debated fragment from Matthew a man named Karsten Peter Thede, he writes in a book called Eyewitnesses to Jesus, and he's dealing with a fragment of Matthew that many would argue actually dates to within a a, a few years or a few decades of the original. And so what we're looking at is a fragment of Matthew that is so incredibly close to the writing of the original that perhaps the majority of eyewitnesses are still alive. 
Now, not surprisingly, that is debated and controversial. But we, we do know that the ancient manuscripts do not have large time gaps between the original and the most recent copies that we have. I mean, if you just look, the time gap is only 40 years. The next closest is 200 years. Then it jumps to 400 years or a few hundred years. Here's what I am saying. If you're going to reject the New Testament, you need to reject the philosophy department at the State University, the history department at the State University, and the literature department at the State University if you judge them by the same standards as the New Testament. Furthermore, look at the number of manuscripts, 5,795. That is more than all other ancient manuscripts combined. Combined. And so here is what I want you to know. This is the word of God. It has been preserved by God and his people despite great opposition at great expense. That when you pick up the word of God, what you are picking up is accurately copied and faithfully translated. And furthermore, God the Holy Spirit will help you to understand it because it is his strong desire that you hear from the word of God and you become like the son of God. That is the big idea and point. We believe the Bible, we trust the Bible, we love the Bible, we study the Bible, we obey the Bible, we want to echo the Bible, we do not want to edit the Bible. Furthermore, Jesus taught from copies and translations. Did you know that? Jesus taught, he was a rabbi, a teacher of the Old Testament. He taught from copies and translations into languages like Aramaic. That being said, if Jesus trusts the copies and the translations, you and I can trust the copies and translations. Amen? Amen. So when it comes to John's gospel, we've now come full circle. We've driven all the way around the cul-de-sac. We're right back where we started. That was your first of two sermons. Your first sermon was to set us up for John chapter 7, verse 53, through John chapter 8, verse 11, the woman caught in adultery. And as I noted, and let me say this, isn't it great when there is a question, your Bible notes it because your Bible is an honest book. When you watch the news tonight, they will not do this. We have an eyewitness account, but we're not sure of their credibility. So we want you to listen carefully because we want to be open about all the facts. We want to reveal the truth. And if our source is in question, we want to have full integrity. Your, your nightly newscast does not include full disclosure and or footnotes. Amen? It does not. The Bible is the most honest book ever written. So honest that even if there is a question, it tells you. Okay. When it comes to the woman caught in adultery, it says some of the ancient manuscripts or the best oldest ancient manuscripts do not include this story. A couple things I would note. Number one, no major doctrine is in question. Number two, it does not contradict anything else in the Bible. And there are two primary views that are postulated. One is by the early church father, Augustine. And he postulated that the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 7 and 8 
was in the original and then it was removed because people feared it would contribute to massive adultery. And so maybe it was even possible that as they read it, they're like, hey, people get to commit adultery and Jesus doesn't care. How many people today wish the Bible said you could sleep with whomever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want? I don't know if you've noticed this, there's still a trend toward naughtiness, okay? And, and some people would read the Bible and say, she committed adultery, nothing happened. I committed adultery, nothing happened. I'm being biblical. Augustine's point is perhaps this caused some people to wrongly use the Bible, and so it was removed. Another early church father, Jerome, seems to indicate or intimate that it was not in the original, but it is a faithful historical rendering of something that really did occur. It is not included in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and so it was added to John for historicity and valuation of an accurate historical record. What I will now do is just share it with you. The woman caught in adultery. That is the introduction. Okay, John chapter 7, verse 53. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. The season, the time, is during the Feast of Booths. This was after the harvest. Everybody was in a good mood. Money in your pocket. Your work is done. It's a holiday. Everybody goes to the temple, and they sleep in booths or tents because that's how they sojourned in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Think Easter meets 4th of July. 4th of July, no school, no work. Yeah, it's sunny out. Easter, big religious holiday. We're all going to church. That's what's happening at the temple. All the people came to him. So it's in the morning. Jesus is preaching and teaching. He's a great preacher, teacher. The crowds show up and he sat down. That was their custom. And he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, religious leaders, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. Imagine it's Easter Sunday. You're all here dressed up, bonnets on. Some leaders drag some woman in wearing not enough, drag her up to the stage, put her there, stop the band, stop the service. We just witnessed this woman commit adultery. This is abuse of this woman. This is shock value. This is scandal and controversy. Well, Jesus is trying to teach the Bible on a holiday. It's horrible. It's awful. It's evil. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. That's the story. Can you smell it? It smells like a setup, doesn't it? Adultery probably wasn't happening at the temple. If you're going to commit adultery, it's probably off-site. The temple is filled with worshipers. That means that these religious men would need to leave the temple and go out of town to someone's home to find someone committing adultery. What are they doing there? Number two, I don't know if you know this, adultery tends to be something sort of private and secretive. How do these guys know what's happening and they're watching it all happen? 
Here's my question too. Who's missing? The man. Bicycling is a solo sport. Swimming is a solo sport. Adultery is a team sport. The woman is caught in adultery. Where's the man? Where's the man? This to me smells like a setup. This to me seems, and the timing is very curious. All right, Jesus will be teaching tomorrow morning. Service hours are posted. Everyone is coming. Okay, Tommy, you go sleep with her. All of us, for religious purposes, we'll stand outside and watch just to verify the facts for religious purposes. And then we'll grab the woman, we'll drag her, we'll throw her before Jesus, make a big scandal. Tony, you go home. To fully appreciate the story, you need to identify with the participants. Are you number one, like the woman? You are guilty, you've been caught, it's known, and you did it, whatever it is. Number two, are you like the man? You're guilty, you did it, whatever it is, but it seems like you got away with it, nobody knows. Number three, are you more like the religious leaders? Busybodying, fault-finding, accusing, nitpicking, judging everyone else, overlooking your own faults, failures, and flaws. As some of you would say, well, what about Jesus? None of you are like Jesus, okay? So that's the first rule of Bible translation. If you always read the Bible and you're like, oh, I'm like Jesus again, you're reading it wrong and you're being dishonest. So none of you gets to be Jesus, okay? You get to be the woman, the man, or the religious hypocrite. Rock, paper, scissors. Pick one. That's who you are, okay? Now, that being said, the story continues. Jesus is caught in a trap. Now, in the law, and this is the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament are called the books of the law. They were penned by Moses. They have 613 laws. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. In the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by death. That's why there weren't a lot of repeat adulterers. They're like, he just keeps committing adultery. One and done, son. That's how we roll. Okay, now in our culture, we tend not to take adultery very seriously. In the Bible, God takes adultery very seriously. It was a capital offense. It was a capital offense. Um, sometimes in a counseling session, someone will come in, and they'll say, my spouse has committed adultery a whole bunch of times. You know, do I have grounds for a divorce? And those are complicated, and we want to work through those practically and pastorally and relationally. But in the Old Testament, you didn't have to fill out any paperwork. They died, and you moved on. So they are quoting the Old Testament law. Is she guilty of adultery? Technically, yes. So what do you say? They said this to what? To test him. We are not to test the Lord, we are to trust the Lord. When class is in session, we don't sit down and say, okay, God, I have a test for you. I'll see if you pass it. Here are my questions and objections, and I will score your paper accordingly. Class is always in session, and Jesus is always the teacher, and we're always the student. There is an inversion here where these people believe that they have authority over Jesus. 
Some people still do that. They judge God. God is wrong. God said wrong. God did wrong. God, we've evolved. We've moved on. We're beyond that. God, I correct you. I judge you. Red ink on your paper. No. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Jesus never penned a book. Here he's going to write something. We don't know exactly what it is. Here's the woman, the crowd, the religious leaders, the men. He starts writing. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. What he doesn't say is, nothing's happened. But what are we going to do with what's happened? And what's more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. Some speculate. We don't know. When we get to heaven, it'll be a good question to ask Jesus. The men could read it. The people could not. Some say maybe he was writing others because one of the Ten Commandments was thou shalt not commit adultery. Seventh commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, if my memory is correct. But she had violated that commandment, but it seems like they're violating other commandments. So maybe he wrote on the ground, uh, do not bear false witness, which is what they were perhaps doing. Do not covet another man's wife. And they had just watched her do some things that they shouldn't have been watching. Or maybe he wrote, thou shalt not commit adultery, and then put their name in the name of their girlfriend. Oh, Sally. Well, look at the time. All right. I got to. Yeah, I was going to judge, but I'm all booked up today. All of a sudden, I'm very booked up. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the old guys. You know why? The longer you live, the more you sin. Amen? Yes, Pastor Mark, that is true, right? So the old guys are like, uh, yeah, good luck. Yeah, good luck with that. You know, I'll be, I'm home, I'm leaving. Here's the trap. In the Old Testament law, adultery was a capital crime. You would kill someone by stoning, taking rocks and literally throwing them at the person. In the Mishnah, which was the Jewish law, in addition to the scriptures in the days of Jesus, they would say that the man who committed adultery should be buried up to his legs in dung. And that a towel would be wrapped around his neck and one guy on each side, maybe the husband and the dad, would pull until they choked him to death publicly while he is buried in dung. In addition to God's laws, there were religious leaders' laws, and there were Roman laws. God's people, at this point, they were occupied, overtaken by the large Roman Empire that had a wide variety of religions and languages and peoples. And the Roman authority said no one is allowed to try and execute someone based on religious law. So they put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. If you execute the woman, you will be violating the government. They will arrest you and throw you in jail. If you fail to execute the woman, you are violating the laws of Moses. You are not quote unquote biblical. And as a result, people will no longer follow you as a Bible teacher. The war is always on Bible teaching and the forgiveness of sin. And they're 
giving Jesus two failed options. How many of you have been in that place? If I do this, I lose. If I do this, I lose. Do I violate God's laws or man's laws? What Jesus does is filled with the Holy Spirit. He chooses a wise path forward and he navigates through this literal veritable landmine. And in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, the person bringing the public charge would have to be the one to cast the first stone. And it was a way of assuring or at least mitigating against false charges. Because if you were the first to throw the first stone, what you're saying is what I am testifying to is fact. And if it is later disproven, the family and friends can do to me what I am now going to do to them. This would really reduce false charges and claims. If I execute them and I am lying, you can execute me, an eye for an eye. Who was without sin and had the right to cast the first stone? Only Jesus. Only Jesus had the right to cast the first stone. What is he going to do? And Jesus was left alone with a woman. Eventually, all the religious leaders leave. She is standing before him. Can you see this? Here is a woman who is publicly shamed, abused, mistreated, and used. This is a holy day, holiday at the temple, the presence of God, the old covenant church. Everyone walks away and she's just there with Jesus and Jesus gets to decide her fate. And he alone has the right to pick up the first stone and to cast it at her. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Where, where, where'd everybody go? Some of you argue with Jesus. You'll never win that argument. Some of you think that you've found a way to use the Bible against God. You'll never win that debate. Woman, where'd everybody go? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, next word, Lord. This is the beginning of her conversion. This is the beginning of her salvation. This is the beginning of her new life with Christ. Lord, Lord, the shortest profession of a believer is that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin, no more. There's a heaviness 
because of our sinfulness. Some of you have had this sin committed against you. Some of you have committed this sin. Some of you have been caught like the woman. Some of you have not been caught like the man. Some of you are planning and plotting, and you've not yet acted. This is how Jesus treats guilty sinners. And there's a couple of things I want to share with you. Number one, judge yourself before you judge anyone else. These religious leaders show up. We're here to judge the woman. Jesus is like, hey, since we're judging, let's start. I put you guys in the front of the line. This is what haughty religious people do. They judge others, not themselves. Your sin, not mine. Your problem, not mine. Your failure, not mine. Judge yourself before you judge anyone else. How many of us can really say that I am pure, I have kept myself without any sin? Because Jesus later, he elsewhere, I should say, talks not only of adultery of the hands, he talks of adultery of the heart. Some of you would be religious, say, I have never committed adultery of the hands. I would be very suspect of anyone who says, I have never committed adultery of the heart. My thought life is pure and I have nothing to be ashamed of. Before you judge anyone else, judge yourself. Number two, put your rock down. Some of you have a rock and it's got somebody's name on it. And some of you, you you throw it at them and then you pick it up and then you throw it at them. Some of you, it's really convenient in your marriage. Every time we disagree, I just pick up that rock and throw it, then they fall down and I win. Put your rock down. Put your rock down. Jesus deals with the religious leaders and Jesus deals with the woman. And upon the judgment of the dead, Jesus will deal with the man. Jesus deals with everybody. You deal with Jesus and you let Jesus deal with them. Number three, when all is said and done, it's going to be just you and Jesus standing there. See, at the end of time, it's going to be like this. You're going to be standing there. Satan, demons, your accusers, your condemners, they're all going to just testify. Here's who you are. Here's what you've done. And then eventually they're going to all walk away and it's just going to be you and Jesus standing there just like it was for this woman. When all is said and done, it's going to be just you and Jesus So pay attention to that relationship and get to know him as Lord. Number four, Jesus does not punish you because he was punished for you. This woman should have experienced the death penalty. She does not. Instead, Jesus goes to the cross and he dies in her place for her sin to pay her debt of death. And he does that for you and me as well. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one who loves, seeks, saves, and serves like Jesus. Jesus dies for her. Jesus dies for you. Jesus dies for me. 
what that means is we don't need to kill each other and you don't need to kill yourself. You need to accept that Jesus died in your place. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he does not punish me because he was punished for me. He does not punish you because he was punished for you. He does not punish her because he's going to go to the cross and be punished for her. Number five, Jesus forgives sin. Jesus forgives. Let me say this. You don't work for your forgiveness. You work from your forgiveness. He doesn't tell her, you need to get your act together and come back to me. And if you change your lifestyle, then I will render a verdict of forgiven. What he says is, we'll start with forgiveness, and then that will change you, and that will change your lifestyle. Let me say this. Hard words produce soft people. Soft words produce hard people. I want to say something that's going to be a little firm for you, but it's because I love you. Some of you, you believe that Jesus forgives you, but you can't forgive yourself. I hear this from people all the time. Pastor Mark, I know that Jesus forgives me. I just can't forgive myself. That sounds humble. It's actually haughty. What you're saying is, Jesus judged me and declared me forgiven. But then I, being a judge above Jesus, have overturned his verdict. And where Jesus called me forgiven, I declare myself unforgiven. That seems humble, but it's haughty. What right do you have to overturn a verdict of Jesus? You are not in the higher court. He is in the highest court. He is Lord. Imagine if you were on trial and the judge said, you are free to go. And you say, no, no, no. No, I I sentenced myself to prison. The judge would say, it is locked. That is not your jurisdiction. You need to move on now. No, judge, I I have judged myself. And the judge would say, this is not your court. The verdict has been rendered. You have no authority to overturn the verdict. In the courtroom of God, if Jesus forgives you, you are forgiven. Forgiven. So it, it is not that you need to forgive yourself, it's that you need to receive Jesus' verdict of forgiven. Number six, Jesus lifts condemnation. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. She could have been forgiven and moved on, but she could have carried that condemnation and shame the rest of her life. Some of you are that way. You are forgiven, but you carry the condemnation and shame, particularly when it comes to sexual sin. Romans 8.1 says, there is now how much condemnation for those who are in Christ? No. No condemnation. There is now no, no, good news, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus not only forgives you, he no longer condemns you. If you feel condemned, that's demonic. That's the accuser of the children of God. He accuses them day and night. Revelation 12, 10, that is the demonic realm. That is bitter people. That is rock throwers. Some of you need to leave your condemnation here. Some of you need to leave your shame here. Some of you need to leave your burden here. Some of you need to leave your past here. Some of you need to leave your lifestyle here. 
and go and sin no more. Number seven, Jesus gives dignity. He says to her, what? What's this little word? Woman, if you were here with me earlier in John's gospel, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. He did so at the request of his mother, and he looked at her, and do you remember what he said to her? Woman. Did Jesus love his mom? Yes. Does Jesus love this woman? Yes. He's treating her with dignity and honor and respect. He's not going to shame her, condemn her for the rest of her life. He has forgiven her and changed her and given her a new life. Number eight, this will be offensive, but it's true. Today, our culture would tell this woman, you have nothing to apologize for. That's an alternative lifestyle. It was two consenting adults. Who are we to judge? Here's a rainbow sticker for your camel. Join our parade. Welcome to the party. (laughs) Jesus tells her to go and sin no more. Was she sinning? Yes. Go and sin no more. Jesus calls us to a countercultural lifestyle. If everybody's doing it, it's not rebellion. Right? People are committing adultery, dating, relating, and fornicating. Singles are cohabitating. Everybody's doing it. If you really want to be a rebel, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. This is Jesus' invitation to the kind of lifestyle that only the children of God can experience and enjoy. This is where we read of Jesus. He says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't want to live our lives culture up. We want to live our lives kingdom down. Culture up is sin. Culture up is shame. Culture up is brokenness. Culture up is condemnation. Kingdom down is forgiveness. Kingdom down is condemnation lifted. Kingdom down is relationship with Jesus, clear conscience, and an alternative countercultural lifestyle to go and sin no more. That who you were is not who you are. That where you come from is where you are, not where you are going. That the way you used to believe is not how you now believe. The way that you used to behave is not the way you will forever behave. And the last point I want to share, and then we're going to worship because this is good news. To have the burden lifted, to have the shame lifted, to have the condemnation lifted, to have the forgiveness come and the freedom come. You need to give your sin to Jesus. You need to receive him as Lord. All of this happens at what place? Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4 says that when the Lord Jesus returns, he will land on the Mount of Olives. He will set his feet on the Mount of Olives. It says that the Mount of Olives will turn into a valley. And what will happen for you and me is the same thing that happened for this woman in the same place. That you and I will stand before the Lord Jesus. That all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our faults and all of our flaws will be made known. And Jesus will say, I do not condemn you. I forgive you. I do not condemn you. I love you. I do not judge you. I was judged for you. I do not punish you. I was punished for you. Faithful servant, enter into your rest. Welcome into your eternal kingdom. Receive your eternal power. Live in your eternal destiny. Walk with me forever and go in. Sin no more. Sin no more. Sin no more. Father God, I thank you for an opportunity to teach your perfect word here to these dear people. 
Lord Jesus, as we open your word, the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts and he instructs and he directs and he heals and he comforts and he corrects. Father God, when it comes to sin, we've all got it. Some of us have been caught. Some of us were in hiding, but we're now caught by you. Lord Jesus, we now come to meet with you. We come to be forgiven by you. We come to be changed by you. We come that we might live a new life as forgiven, free, new people who by the power of the Holy Spirit can go and sin no more. God, I pray for an unburdening on these people. I pray for an unveiling on these people. I pray for hope, help, healing. I pray for the breaking of demonic strongholds and thought life and action and behavior. And Lord, we thank you for this woman's story because for all who call on you as Lord, this is our story. We come to partake of communion, remembering that you were punished, broken body, shed blood in our place for our sins. And we come to celebrate as they did. And we come to walk with you and to walk away from sin. Lord Jesus, thank you that you do not condemn us, that you receive us. And that with you, we can walk away from sin and go and sin no more.